Um, I'll... Fair enough. Hey, uh, everyone, I'm going to go ahead and uh, kick us off and just get us getting right down the road because uh, this is uh, this is not only a fun read, as Jack was mentioning, it's my favorite parts of the book because we happen to be trying to have a discussion on the server generally about uh, uh, what it means to do something new for the left, what a new message might be. And lo and behold, we're coming to the first positive task of schizoanalysis, which is, I think... Uh, right in line with that. So I'm going to go and share my screen and uh, make sure the recording is going. Excellent. Uh, we are set. Uh, so I will go ahead and kick us off. Um, and uh, thank all of you very much for joining. Uh, Jack, if you want to ping. Doug, yeah, hello. Jack. I will ping Doug and everyone else. Excellent. I'll ping Doug for sure. Uh, but I will go ahead and uh, kick off and uh, say thank you and hello and welcome to the Delusing Watery's Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are nearing the end of our second read-through. We are beginning finally 4.4, the first positive task of schizoanalysis. As we have just finished the destructive, deconstructive task of schizoanalysis uh, in the previous section as our goal is to break things apart. There is positive tests, and there isn't just one, but there may be two. This is no easy section, though. Uh, like our previous section that took multiple weeks to get through, I fully expect um, the rest of this book actually to take us through to June, would be my guess, actually, um, which is significant. But there's a lot to discuss here, a lot of very particular usages of words and a lot of things coming together that I want to make sure everyone grasps as we get going. Um, and I want to make sure uh, my understanding is, is good because uh, the last time we went through this, it wasn't nearly as strong. So I'm, I'm really excited to make our way through this. Um, as always, uh, if you're liking what we're doing, you can find us on Patreon, D and GQC or Twitter, DGQC, where we do absolutely fucking nothing. Uh, so don't, don't follow us. Um, thank you so much. And I'm just going to go ahead and uh, dive on in. <clears throat> The negative or destructive task of schizoanalysis is in no way separable from its positive tasks. All these tasks are necessarily undertaken at the same time. The first positive task consists of discovering in a subject the nature, the formation, or the functioning of his desiring machines, independent of any interpretations. What are your desiring machines? What do you put into these machines? What is the output? How does it work? What are your non-human sexes? The schizoanalyst is a mechanic. A schizoanalysis is solely functional. In this respect, it cannot remain at the level of a still interpretive examination, interpretive from the point of view of the unconscious, of the social machines in which the subject is caught as a cog or a user, nor of the technical machines that are his prized possession, or that he perfects or even produces through handiwork, nor of the subject's use of his machines and his dreams and his fantasies. These machines are still too representative and represent units that are too large. Even the perverted machines of the sadist or the masochist, even the influencing machines of the paranoiac. We have seen in general that the pseudo-analyses of the object were really the lowest level of the analytic activity even and especially when they claim to double the real object with an imaginary object. And better, a how-to interpret your dream's book than 
psych, a, then a psychoanalysis of the marketplace. Um, I really like this paragraph. Um, there's a couple lines in here I know people get stuck on, and I did last time. Um, the, the sentence that matters is the second one. The first positive task consists of discovering in a subject the nature, the formation, or the functioning of his desiring machines, independent of any interpretations. That's the line. In, interpretations here uh, being very crisply the push towards trying to make something work within representation or to understand it within an abstraction. They're very much not doing that. They want to get to, as he says, their desiring machines as they are. The phrasing that they use in the explanation in the next sentence, I think, clears this, which is, what are your desiring machines? What do you put into these machines? What is the output? How does it work? What are your non-human sexes? Uh, reference back to our earlier section that they end where ultimately uh, that is the idea that everything at the base level is sex. These desire machines connecting and disconnecting, fucking can doing this thing, but they're not human. There is no element of humanity in them. Instead, it is the desiring machine. So what are your non-human sexes? What is the input? What is the output? What is the essence that is these little desiring machines? And can we find them? What is the formation? What is the functioning? Independent of the interpretation of daddy, mommy, me, or uh, hierarchical, or um, you're, oh, you're upset with work or this mythology. Instead, the very much essence at the base of the desiring machine. That's a, my general explanation of this. Um, and I think it works really crisply. Again, talking through the way that they describe. Um, and then I know the first question everyone asks is, well, how does it work? And I mean, literally, this is the intro chapter. So try to hold that one back until we get a little deeper in. But is there issues with any of the wording in here that people find confusing unto themselves or unto itself? Please ask away. Yeah, when he says that the beyond interpretation, uh, <clears throat> that the um, the right understanding of of the uh, of one's desire machines is beyond what is uh, put into the. Uh, these unconscious uh, by the other. And in a sense, the unconscious is, is also an other, right? So there is the, uh, there is all, there always this, this other um, that is non-human, right? The non-human part is, uh, is, is what the other is, are you saying? The makeup who we are, right? I think it goes even deeper than that. Um, I'd, I'd be open to hearing anyone else's response because it's a great question. Um, to me, we're going way beyond Lacanian concepts of the other. Um, we're going far below that. Um, at the base level, you might say, oh, oh, someone has an issue with the phallus or this developmental issue happened and so we interpret this or that. But instead, he's very much talking about the functional. Uh, we, we aren't talking about the carburetor which is a part of a car, still a part, but it is still a thing. It is still a full S of a full body unto itself. We're talking about the metal inside of it, the, the literal workings of the things that are within it. So we're even going deeper than the things that we are able to sort of um, uh, utilize representation to describe. So it's much deeper than even the other. 
It is the non-human sections, the, the thousands or the millions of them that are ultimately producing any person's subjectivity, um, if that makes sense. So it's um, the, the line that they say towards the end here. We have seen in general that the pseudo-analyses of the object were really the lowest level of analytic activity, even and especially when they claim to double the real object with an imaginary. That's a direct line at sort of traditional psychoanalysis as I read it where they're saying that like by talking about the object uh, of any sort, uh, we are at that level above the desiring machine still, still interpreting and doing so through even our own lens or whatever it may be, and that there is a deeper level that we're able to work with and play within uh, in order to uh, heal and work with people. Does that make sense, JK? Yeah, so the psychoanalytic interpretation is is also another interpretation from that psychoanalytic. Yeah, it's it's, it's the the Lacanian version of the the stage that uh, people have their characters dancing on uh, their essence here and there, these these kinds of things versus um, their view, which is underneath the stage or around the stage. You might really want to know more. Oh well, what's making those people do that? What is how is the script written? What is what paper is it on? What is the time frame? What are the materials? What are the shoes of the dancers? Uh, how do they actually work? Breaking down the every little bit instead of the interpretation, which is at the end, oh, this is a this is a tragedy. It's like ah, oh, wait, wait, wait. We're way deeper than that. We want to go way deeper. I think that's a fair way to say it. Uh, anyone have a different take? Anyone want to expand or add? I want to get to Rimka's question for sure. Um, but I want to sort of focus on this for just a moment. I, I guess what I'd add there is, um, I think you're right about this is not a question of interpretation because usually when we qualify interpretation in this in this book, right, we're thinking basically about reference to an, a really a pre-established framework that just kind of explains everything, right? Not, not necessarily just, it's not really about a meta-narrative per se, it's more about like, you can look at the schema and in the schema, everything is explained. So like I think of like a Quesnay's explanation of the economy one picture, right? And that becomes kind of the representation, but that also becomes the medium for interpretation. So the way we're talking about things, the way that production is uh, represented there, right? Because then that becomes a new connection. There's a serious risk there of being stuck in that framework and not getting at the things that are actually connecting the things as they're functioning. And the intensities that produce that subjectivity. Uh, as for the others, the, the risk there is it depends how you want to go. Brooks is right that it's not so much like a Lacanian thing, because they say in the beginning, right, the big other is basically just a signifier, and uh, the object petita is a desiring machine, right? So if you want to go toward like a Levinasian thing, you may be able to do that. But what you won't have is like the sense of self that grounds that often in phenomenology. 
because we're in the unconscious factory. So that's my two cents to it. Yeah, and I actually think um, Rimka's question is actually a really good example of it. And I don't, uh, I, ho I hope this comes across okay. But the, the question of why, why does Luce say his in here? Because we have an immediate reaction as we interpret the literal words that are on the page based on the words that are there. But the words that we're using to describe this as such are already an interpretation. In fact, we're literally dealing with an interpretation via translation here. The original text uh, doesn't really have his or hers because that's not how French works as a language. Instead, there's feminine, masculine, and the interpretation of that text through this translator, uh, which I have a lot of issues with at this point, especially our second reading through, uh, puts his, her, very rarely uses non-binary terms as it, and Deleuze kind of jumps back and forth, and I'm not sure if there's even an underlying reason for one or the other in the original text. So when we're looking at this and we say his desiring machines, and there's emphasis in that, which is strange, uh, it's not the emphasis even in the his, but the male patient. Uh, the subject, uh, that thing with a masculine bent in the original text. So underneath, we're able to take a look at, oh, actually, here's how these things are originally connecting. But if we look at this, this interpretation, we get focused on these things that feel like they may matter to us. And this is the trap that they've kind of talked about traditional psychoanalysis being in throughout this entire book. And they've gone through it quite a bit. And I think most psychoanalysts, most psychoanalysts would even agree. It's the, the issue of the person on the end who is still a person with their own flaws, with their own you know, complexes or whatever it may be, who are interpreting all of these things. Ultimately, it, it becomes a blind leading the blind situation. If there's a way instead where we can realize this such thing and try to find a way to get beyond interpretation to the underlying essences and the functions of the bits, where it's not about the his desiring machines, but instead, oh, that's just the interplay of the words, we're talking about the subject, and, and, and the very functional bits, which they're very crisp about here, this is very much what they're talking about as well. So it actually works kind of as an answer to Rimka's question, but also as an example of what they're talking about, because interpretation is the, is the issue, representation and interpretation of the problem. Yeah, just just to lightly comment on that, because I was, I was talking with a friend about that too. You know, this has been one of the most enlightening things in the second reading has been what to do about representation, right? Because the paragraph basically concludes with going toward the molar, right? It's like the, uh, the, sadist, uh, the sadistic machine, the masochistic machine, sadomasochistic machine. It's been more fundamentally, right, the paranoiac machine. So more toward that, that like, um, you know, where we're approaching the interstice of the molar and the molecular, the paranoiac and the schizophrenic, right? And it's definitely been enlightening for me reading this, um, again, as, you know, and we've talked about this in these last two sections, is dealing with the representation, right? They say it's true that you have to begin there with a deduction, but the representation shouldn't be where you stay and do all your work, right? Uh, one way to say it, it's like your conclusion shouldn't also be your assumption and claim, right? Uh, to kind of maybe simplify it. So that's why, like, to your point, if you want to apply the, the, the argument to this paragraph, right? 
you do still have that destructive task, which is right, basically tearing apart something in a manner of speaking to build something new out of it, causing a rupture, right, the pipe. And now we're getting to that first positive task, which is that that more bricolure task, right? After after there's a rupture in the process of re, uh, re-territorialization and so forth, um, what becomes creatable? What becomes possible? How can things function anew? That's a great way of putting it. Any more questions on this paragraph, please? I'll give it a moment for awkward silence. So the, 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 the question of how to get beyond one's uh, uh, subjectivity, right? Um, because that's where the interpretation, um, you know, uh, uh, begins. And, and so, you know, the question is how do you know when you're, you are beyond that kind of subjectivity uh, that's interpreting <clears throat> You know, and uh, is that the the absolute machine that is that you try to uh, that he, I think he might be talking about that the plane of consistency? I, or is that the I body without organs? Or you know, right? I think he's going to talk about the body without organs and the uh, partial objects. Yeah, the, the body without organs is definitely a major concern. Right, because if you go back to four point one, we're talking about part of the part of where the the destructive and positive tasks line up is that breakthrough through the BWL, right? Into I think it's like the submolar or micro, sorry, the submolecular, the micromolecular they call it. <clears throat> but it's I don't know if it's getting past your subjectivity. It's getting at all the things that make that subjectivity possible, right? I always think of the way Foucault explains the death of man, where you see man as this gleaming um, mist atop all these different things that make that mist possible, right? And that that mist and the things making it possible, right? That's part of the subjectivity that we want to get at. Um, and that's where we can use some representation under these qualifications. But we can't let that mist and that that which makes it all possible simply become start and end as representation, right? It's it's not it's an unfortunate turn of phrase. It, it's not productive to stay there. <laughs> Bit of a Freudian slip for you. Or I'll move on to the next paragraph, which is great. I'll do so. The consideration of all these machines, however, whether they be real, symbolic, or imaginary, must indeed intervene in a specific way, but as functional indices to point us in the direction of the desiring machines, to which these indices are more or less close and affinal. The desiring machines, in fact, are only reached starting from a certain threshold of dispersion that no longer permits either their imaginary identity or their structural unity to subsist. These instances still belong to the order of interpretation, that is to say, the order of the signified or the signifier. Partial objects are what make up the parts of the desiring machines. Partial objects define the working machine or the working parts, but in a state of dispersion such that one part is continually referring to an 
part from an entirely different machine, like the red clover and the bumblebee, the wasp and the orchid, the bicycle horn and the dead rat's ass. Let's not rush to introduce a term that would be like a phallus structuring the whole and personifying the parts, unifying and totalizing everything. Everywhere there is libido as machine energy, and neither the horn nor the bumblebee have the privilege of being a phallus. The phallus intervenes only in the structural organization and the personal relations deriving from it, where everyone, like the worker called to war, abandons his machines and sets to fighting for a war trophy that is nothing but a great absence, with one and the same penalty, one and the same ridiculous wound for all. Castration. This entire struggle for the phallus, this poorly understood will to power, this anthropomorphic representation of sex, this whole conception of sexuality that horrifies Lawrence, precisely because it is no more than a conception, because it is an idea that reason imposes on the unconscious and introduces into the passional sphere, and is not, by any means, a formation of this sphere. Here is where desire finds itself trapped. Specifically, limited to human sex, unified and identified in the molar constellation. But the desiring machines live on the contrary under the order of dispersion of the molecular elements. And one fails to understand the nature and function of partial objects if one does not see therein such elements rather than parts of, an even, of even a fragmented whole. As Lawrence said, analysis does not have to do with anything that resembles a concept or a person. Quote, the so-called human relations are not involved, end quote. Analysis should deal solely, except in its negative task, with the machinic arrangements grasped in the context of their molecular dispersion. There's a lot said here. There's a lot said here. There's a lot said here. Uh, I do want to go back to just a quick reference. Uh, the bicycle horn and the dead rat's ass. I believe we're going back to Malloy. If I want to just, in my head, is, in, is that right, Jack? Once again? Yeah, I think it, I think that's right. I don't get a dead rat's ass, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's he's utilizing this very particularly because the the nature of how these machines work, while they are seemingly disconnected as he says it here, um the way that Malloy and all a lot of the works that he references in this direction operate is that they are very much connected. One operates the other. Um, and works with them the same way that the wasp and the orchid uh, are ultimately parts of different machines, yet very much one and the same machine. Uh, the red clover bumblebee is the same, but bicycle horn and dead rat's ass is a reference to Malloy and the way that he schizophrenically is placing objects and connecting them in his reality and the way that they operate. Uh, it's actually an important turn of phrase used here because the ultimate reality is we're not talking about things that we are aware are necessarily structured. Wasp and Orchid, I think everyone here can understand pretty crisply how those two, it's our toe, it's our toe. Of course it's fucking our toe. God damn it. Doesn't matter, same point. The point doesn't change. It's one of the schizophrenic authors that lose references uh, and underneath it all, I, I got confused Bicycle and, and Malloy's mother. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> um, uh, damn it. Um, anyway, yeah. It, the, uh, the also point's the same. Thing Go ahead, Triad. 
yeah, just just one thing maybe to frame it in other terms. It reminds me of this uh, critique of a clear distinction between organism and its surroundings, because there is then no mediary space, so to speak, uh, and maybe a membrane. But uh, here, the organism is not a, a unified, uh, structured whole. It's uh, uh, constantly growing and, and dying off. It's uh, creating its own milieu, and you cannot um, distinguish uh, in a hard line between something that is functioning and relating to its surroundings and uh, vice versa. So it's this this uh, greater milieu or different milieus that are interacting with each other and creating uh, structural invariance, but only on a temporal level, never in an absolute way of some kind of substance or um identity in a uh, eternal sense you're making a distinction between the um this uh, pervasive uh will to power you know in nature you know that is um that is you know apart from um you know the human interpretation the Oedipal interpretation of what this um this will to power is you know in, in phallic and in terms like phallic castration, you know, like uh, human human sex is uh, is is just one interpretation of that uh, will to power, right? Um, is that the decision he's making here? Say that one more time for me. I'm sorry, J.K. It didn't connect in my head as you were saying. Yeah, the, uh, the distinction between you know, like uh, you know, the the, the you know um, desire and production, which is pervasive in nature, right? The will to power is pervasive in nature. Nietzsche's will to power. That is, uh, you know, in, in nature, in the in the, the, the activities of the bumblebee and the, um, you know, and, um, you know, uh, that is distinct from the human interpretation or the phallic interpretation, you know, of this will to power. Right? It's, there's a slight edge here that I think is different. So let's, uh, we'll talk about the phallic in a second. Let's go back to the wasp and the orchid. Um, very specifically, we shouldn't be thinking of the wasp and orchid as two machines. They're, they're not. They're necessarily always referring to each other. There is no disconnection in the same way that if I were to say JK as a machine, I'm referring to thousands of, of social or hard physical organs or whatever it may be that make you up. It's insisting and assuming and presuming on such a thing. With the wasp and the orchid, one is a partial object, not because it's a whole thing unto itself or separate from the orchid, but that by saying the wasp and the orchid, I'm saying two things that necessarily presume the other um, because they sort of lean into the other one. They function in a way that, as it says, one part is continually referring to a part from an entirely different machine. Their connection is that continual reference. And that's the bicycle horn and the dead rat's ass from our toe, it, it's, it's Malloy and kind of everything around his mother. Um, it's, it's a ton of different sort of essences that, that we presume this machine because it automatically connects to the next, even though we act like they may be sort of separate, they're not. The phallus is unique in the sense that it, we're not talking about even an object there um, in, as I read this. And I'd, I'd love anyone else giving a version of this but specifically that the phallus is not a partial object or an object or a thing that adds, but a structural object almost, that by having it introduced, it's actually purely about the structure and the way that it operates ultimately leading to castration, 
which immediately totalizes. And as such, when we have the castration element within the wasp and the orchid, we think of two separate elements. Uh, when we think of, uh, of us as people, we totalize as Brooks, we totalize as JK, we totalize as philosophy nerd, we totalize as, recently in the news, Ukrainian or Russian. We, we totalize. That's the phallus naturally stops us from connecting with the billions of partial objects that ultimately make up any given whole uh, because that's what it does. It is a structural item, not necessarily a, a thing unto itself or a machine unto itself. That's what the phallus sort of operates as. It's our logic of sense readings, um, I think, drew this out a little bit more clearly and it, it helped me make this, this is, again, this is my interpretation. Um, but the way that the phallus works is not as an item within a series, uh, even heterogeneous or homogeneous, but instead as an element that homogenizes the series, that naturally sort of caps off and creates the structure. Right. So, so the phallus is a, um, a symbolic uh, for the um, Oedipal interpretation of, of all these partial objects in, in, in nature. I think that Deleuze is critiquing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's... it's, it's um, the idea, um, this anthropomorphic representation of sex, this whole conception of sexuality that horrifies, this thing that it's really pushing through here is that these things are one fucking into the other, the same way you might say uh, penis, vagina, penis, ass, whatever, pick your hole, pick your object, pick your sexual organ. These things necessarily sort of push into something else, but if we talk about it purely in the human sense, we talk man, woman, binary, close it off, done. And that's castration. That's, that's the phallus comes in and does like, oh, well, you've got the phallus or not. That's the two sides. There you go. There's the only two. And as such, we've totalized. And desire in that space becomes deeply, deeply trapped, as they say here, specifically limited to human sex, unified and identified in the molar constellation rather than where it's really happening, which is all the partial objects. There's uh, the bureaucrat's fingers across his folders is I think my favorite phrasing they use for it because that is a non-human sex. It's totally sexual and there's arousal and sexuality. There's the, the fascist crowd. It's totally sexual, uh, not in the sense of fucking, but in the sense of sex and creation and connection and, and desire production. These are the moments that these things happen, but desire gets trapped inside of ultimately this binary molar shit fest that is created by the phallus, which is just a structuralizing element ultimately, as I read it. I hope that made sense. Yeah, this, this idea of the phallus then is very limiting and it's... Uh structural uh, connectivity and its ways of production, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's certainly limiting, right? As I think about it, right, like the phallus they've explained as being a, a representation of lack, right? So like that's what we said earlier is it's the classic um, what you wanted was this right this was the connection that that that's um, missing and and Deleuze and Guattari like the ethics around that is really quite fascinating because they'll call this um, a kind of deprivation 
and I think in those terms, it's 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 really interesting, right? Um, that said, you know, when they get into like the this point about reason and the conceptuality, you know, I I think the critique they're moving toward, right, is that what's done with something like the phallus or what's done with um, the anthropomorphic representation um, or this uh, poorly conceived will to power, right? It's, 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 it's kind of the same point about what do these things do, right? What's their function? Why are they being used this way? And the point I see them making is that um, it's basically, and this is part of why the interpretation functions the way it does, I think, the easy way to say it is it's by explaining the id in terms of the ego. That's like the classic psychoanalytic way, right? Where the rational, the rational ego, by way of the reality principle, right, mitigates or redirects the pleasure principle. And what happens then, the risk I see them saying is that by focusing on the ego, you begin to supplant um, the desires with the object, as we saw in the previous paragraph. And with the ego trying to do that negotiation, so right, it's like saying uh, you hunger because you you want a chicken leg. Well, no, you you hunger because of the desire, right? And the desire functions through those connections, functions, and intensities, right? And that's what produces um, this connection to the chicken leg. It's not necessarily because there was a chicken leg that hunger started. It's because this unconscious aspect produced that um, that that sense of hunger, right? I'm not very good with the metaphors today. I'm using chicken legs, but hope, hopefully, I made the point. Making me make wings later, I think too. Um. No, it's a good point. I think it's fair. Again, it's it's a tough one to start grasping because we're not talking about uh, the traditional push in psychoanalysis, uh, which is across the board. And I I know if Ken were here, he'd probably yell at me for making a generalization like this, and it's probably not fair. But the the general push is 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 towards uh, oh, you are this archetype, or you're dealing with this concept or this symbol that we're very aware of. You have issues with your dad. You have trauma from this. You react to this. And these totalizing elements ignore all of the massive complexities that are the desiring machines that exist at the molecular. And to here, they're very much talking about being aware of this and how we can be aware of this and how we can move forward. The, the line that I really like is Lawrence uh, and how, he, how he's horrified, precisely because it is no more than a conception, because it is an idea that reason imposes on the unconscious and introduces into the passional sphere, not by means of a formation in this sphere. Here is where desire finds itself trapped. This, this concept of how desire is trapped, again, going back to the paralogisms, how they operate and how they've laid this out, this flows very nicely in that. Um, and they have a very clear line that they end this with saying that schizoanalysis and analysis in general, they don't even say schizoanalysis should deal solely except in the negative task with these machinic arrangements grasped in the context of their molecular dispersion, not in the molar symbology that they occupy. That's the, 
brunt of this. Right, and the, this is critical as we're talking about how do we how do we use this stuff, right? You know, this is the difference in making an analysis where you you're relying on like um, a reasoned end, right? Where this happened because of this goal. We had a similar discussion like this on the on the server earlier this week, right? They did this because they had this goal in mind. Well, maybe there was some reasoning, right? We're not saying there's no ego, right? We're, we're not going that far, but that's not the desires that are actually happening so as to produce that, right? And I think that's the critical distinction there is, is kind of like you're saying, right? It's not about finding the object in its context of the symbolic or imaginary or real. Um, it's about looking how that object is bound up in the production of the real. Because if you can start to work with those things, right, um, all of a sudden these positive tasks start becoming uh, tenable. All right. I will continue on to the next paragraph. Let us therefore return to the rule so clearly stated by Serge Leclerc, even if he sees this only as a fiction instead of the real desire. The elements or parts of the desiring machines are recognized by their mutual independence, such that nothing in one depends or should depend on something in the other. They must not be opposed determinations of the same entity, nor the differentiations of a single being, such as the masculine and the feminine in the human sex, but different or really distinct things, distinct beings, as found in the dispersion of the non-human sex, the clover and the bee. As long as schizoanalysis has not arrived at these disparate elements, it has not yet discovered the partial objects as the ultimate elements of the unconscious. It is in this sense that Leclerc used the term erogenous body not to designate a fragmented organism, but an omission of pre-individual and pre-personal singularities, a pure dispersed and anarchic multiplicity without unity or totality, and whose elements are welded, pasted together by the real distinction or the very absence of a link. Such is the case in the schizoid sequence of Beckett, Stone's pocket's mouth, a shoe, a pipe bowl, a small limp bundle that is undefined, a clover for a bicycle bell, half a crutch. Quote, if one indefinitely runs up against the same set of pure singularities, one can feel confident that he has drawn near the singularity of the subject's desire, end quote. To be sure, one can always establish or re-establish some sort of link between these elements, organic links between organs or fragments of organs that eventually form part of the multiplicity, psychological and axiological links, the good, the bad, that finally refer to the persons or to the scenes from which these elements are borrowed, structural links between the ideas or the concepts apt to correspond to them, but it is not in this respect that the partial elements are elements of the unconscious, and we cannot even go along with the image of the partial objects that their inventor, Melanie Klein, proposes. This is because, whether organs or fragments of organs, the partial objects do not refer in the least to an organism that would function phantasmatically as a lost unity or a totality to come. Their dispersion has nothing to do with a lack and constitutes their mode of presence in the multiplicity they form without unification or totalization. With every structure dislodged, every memory abolished, 
every organism set aside, every link undone. They function as raw, partial objects, dispersed working parts of a machine that it is itself dispersed. In short, partial objects are the molecular functions of the unconscious. That is why, when we insisted earlier on the difference between desiring machines and all the figures of molar machines, we were fully aware that they were both contained in and did not exist without one another. But we had to stress the difference in regime and in scale between these two machinic species. Oh, Good that's Lord. interesting. It's a lot. That's actually a, just a metric ton. I, I really like, uh, in the end, the, the aspect of, uh, in short, partial objects are the molecular functions of the unconscious. So it's almost like uh, D&G are searching here for some kind of uh, last level we can uh, use to, to then construct or, or in a poetic way um, create these, these uh, different, more complex functions. So these partial objects... Uh, when they are the molecular functions, are because of their fu uh, functionality, not monads like uh, in Leibniz philosophy, but uh, they have a form of relationability, if you can call it like that, or they are open to become part of a process of operations. And uh, that's something that reminds me, uh, because I'm currently reading into this, um, what Deleuze takes from Hume that there is not, uh, when Hume is also describing the stage of the mind or of the spirit, uh, that there is no real stage in that sense. The stage is only there in the process of the interactions uh, and the operations of the different uh, people on the stage, how they interact with each other. And he's also using the term affection there, uh, what Deleuze then uh, picks up and uh, also finds in the philosophy, for example, of Spinoza, where uh, uh, affection becomes a big thing uh, in his whole thinking because it allows him not to see only a spirit or the mind as something that is unified, is following strict rules uh, or reason that is following something like strict rules, but it is only constituted by these uh, elemental parts that are not only uh, atoms in the sense that we can put them together like Lego blocks, but uh, the very interesting and, and key thing here is their concrete interaction, how they affect each other in specific ways. So how, the, how they um, go into different relationships to each other and by that creating uh, something like an organism that never is reducible or subsumed under some kind of organici organicity or unity, so that is never closed uh, or enclosed within specific borders, but that is always able to um, grow, but also to fail and to to die off in some kind of sense, because we are not dealing here with some kind of transcendental absolute or some ideal system. Yeah, the, the, the early phrasing in this is kind of also incredible just to sort of restate, um, because I, I love how you put that triad. Um, the elements or parts of desiring machines are recognized by their mutual independence, such that nothing is one depends or should depend on the other. 
They must not be opposed determinations of the same entity, nor the differentiations of a single being, such as the masculine and the feminine in the human sex. I have been describing desiring machines. My rudimentary sort of version of this has always been it's the edge of your finger that you can't quite describe, that you can see but isn't totalized. But it's not really even that. That's uh, I mean, it is that, but it's referring to it as such it is improperly talking about it this is this is about this sort of molecular explosion of everything so that we're at this base level of almost there is no meaning or sense from anything that it feels like we're we're talking and those who are not part of our logic of sense reading uh, or haven't read it uh, i apologize i'm just i am now grasping and asking questions is this the uh, single uh, this the uh, not singularities but the uh, the point objects that that he describes the the single objects is that what we're referring to here? I'm having trouble with this one. This is I mean not trouble like I get this sort of but it's it's a difficult one. Yeah, I was following it up to the end um, with the uh, you know all this time and he's talking about partial objects and I understand it's. it's they are partial objects of the unconscious. Then when he gets to the end, he mentions the molar machines, figures of molar machines, and that there's a distinction between um, the partial objects that are in the unconscious, molecular and then the um, the molar figures of the molar machines. Are they are they uh, are they the conscious? Are they in the, uh, conscious as opposed to being uh, unconscious? I would I would say so. The way I would phrase that is actually that um, we have desiring machines uh, with partial objects. The partial objects are the uh, molecular elements, and then the meta, which make up the desiring machines. Molar machines are the meta version of that. They are the aggregate of desiring machines, which they which means that the desiring machines are contained in. Uh, sort of each one is contained in each again, the whole in its parts. One doesn't really exist without the other. Um, and as such, uh, they mostly were stressing the difference in regime and scale between the two species of machines, um, which is the way that they refer to it. So it's much more about sort of one is they're one in the same, but it's a scale and meta question rather than uh, sort of talking about different uh, realities are functioning. It's almost as if he's saying here that they function uh, identically, just with different elements behind them. Yeah, yeah, different regimes, right? Because I, I think what this paragraph's trying to do, um, so in the context of what we just talked about, right, we're kind of talking about again the problem of like, why does the unconscious do the things it do it does, and the trouble with trying to put that in a box, so to speak, right? The trouble of appealing to a representation to understand production, uh, or otherwise, the trouble of trying to explain desire through reason, right? The idea of want being something reasonable. Um, so in this third paragraph, right, I, I think what they're getting at is, why does the unconscious do these things? And how does schizoanalysis kind of track that down? And I think their their point there, right, and, and if you kind of put it in terms of like conditions, right, um, what what's kind of behind the the mole and the molecular? What's what's behind the unconscious doing it? What it does? Um, 
I see them basically trying to say that, right, they start out with the disagreement, well, jump into the middle, they start out with uh, their disagreement with Melanie Klein, right? And they disagree because whether organs or fragments of organs, the partial objects do not refer in the least to an organism that would function phantasm phantasmatically as a lost unity or totality to come. So right, we've seen that language before. What they're basically saying is that the breast doesn't exist as a fragment of a woman. The phallus doesn't exist as a fragment of a man. Um, said in another way, the foot doesn't exist as a fragment of the body because there's not a lost totality. Um, there's a kind of self-sufficiency to partial objects in that they're, they mute, they're coextensive with that um, which they make possible. So the easy way to say that is, right, the things that make up the foot and thereby make up the body, that extension, right, those things all exist through a series of relations. And as you go from the molar to the molecular, those two regimes, um, you are switching regimes, but there's no sense that because there's a body, there must be a foot. The foot is instead contingent on these relationships, and what the foot does is going to be contingent on those relationships and uh, the distributions and intensities, right? So what they're trying to lay out, I think, is a, a similar point that this is not because of a a complete picture making this possible. This is because of the way desire is producing these things. And there's this uh, sort of duplex nature to that, which is the mole and the molecular. And they're coextensive, and they, it doesn't work by way of a hard division, right? There are two regimes that affect how... Um, how one and the other is produced, because they're co-productive, just like they're co-extensive. So it's kind of that, that same point about like there's no lost fragmentation, um, you know. The, by finding the breast, right? We're not finding the the well, one. We're not finding uh, a woman by necessity, and, and more critically, we're not finding the image or symbol of a woman. Right, that's kind of the other point about the phantasm, um, as I think they're using the word here, is that they're not making the appeal to the symbolic or the imaginary to explain this. Um, there may be an explanation there, but that's not why the breast does what it does. I guess to, to make it simple, where they write partial objects and molecular functions of the unconscious, right? They're just getting at that point that partial objects um, if you're going to try and understand things, if you're trying, going to try and do uh, interpretive work in a general sense, it's going to be looking at that regime and how it's functioning, and then the molar and its regime, right, and looking at um, social machines, as I believe what they call them, right, and seeing how they co-produce one another. Hopefully that helps. If not, yeah. maybe we can keep talking about it. Yeah, so the molar uh, machines and the uh, molecular machines are uh, are uh, distinct. Um, this uh, one does not totalize the other, right? The molars are not, you know, totalizing the the molecular, and that's why he makes the point that they are they are distinct, even though they exist as maybe aggregates or, or as unifying uh, 
Um, you know, molar is probably perhaps the, its function is to unify, but it's not totalizing, right? Yeah, to me, it's it's not so much the unity, but everything else. Yeah, I think that's right. Is that there are molar machines and molecular machines, and neither explains the other. They're both instead bound up in a process of co-production, which is the unconscious, right? And they do what they do. Um, based, we can go in. I'm not going to shorthand it, but they, what's produced is not because of a a totality or a unity and appeal to a separate binary, like they say before Klein, right? Um, what they're getting at is why production's happening the way it does and right. under conditions um, that won't appeal to a lost unity um, or just an explanative totality. Right, like, right. Wo if woman, then this. Go ahead. So, so with molar, it's, so with the um, molar machines also be considered partial objects? Uh, in in a manner of speaking, um, the when you when you talk about molar molecular objects, one way to say it is you're putting a partial object into a regime, so you're contextualizing it, right? So, like when they talk about the technical machine, that's a way of contextualizing it more in the molar. So you're getting at a perspective on something, and and more particularly a context of something. Yeah. All right. Thanks. No, no problem, man. That's great. Great questions. Hope, hopefully, that's uh, helpful. Please, anyone else? Uh, there's a lot said here. Um, it's hard to tell where we should focus, or maybe we focused and already nailed all of it, which would be brilliant. But I doubt that. Uh, anyone else? Please. Well, that's easy enough then. I will move to the next paragraph. Uh, <clears throat> it is true that one might instead wonder how these conditions of dispersion, of real distinction, and of the absence of a link permit any machinic regime to exist. How the partial objects thus defined are able to form machines and arrangements of machines. The answer lies in the passive nature of the syntheses, or what amounts to the same thing, in the indirect nature of the interactions under consideration. If it is true that every partial object emits a flow, it is also the case that this flow is associated with another partial object and defines the other's potential field of presence, which is itself multiple, a multiplicity of anuses for the flows of shit. The synthesis of connection of the partial objects is indirect, since one of the partial objects, in each point of its presence within the field, always breaks the flow that another object emits or produces relatively, itself ready to emit a flow that other partial objects will break. The flows are two-headed, so to speak, and it is by means of these flows that every productive connection is made, such as we have tried to account for with the notion of flow skiz or break flow, so that the true activities of the unconscious, causing to flow and breaking flows, consist of the passive synthesis itself insofar as it ensures the relative coexistence and displacement of the two different functions. I'm going to go get some water. Uh, anyone please discuss. Jack, jump on in if you want. Yeah, sure, man. Um... 
go put some uh, water machine into that uh, mouth machine, right? Uh, no, more seriously, though, I mean, I kind of just said a lot. Uh, why don't you guys kind of speak up here? What interests you about the paragraph? Does anything stick out to you? Nothing? Nothing, nothing sticks out to anybody? That, that, uh, how do I uh, frame it? It's very reminiscent of, of different um, philosophical theories we find in something called the spiritual realism we can find in, in French philosophy in, uh, that is leading to, for example, Bergson, who is influencing Deleuze very much, but also um, in the later philosophy of Schelling, etc. When we find these productive tension between two different principles or ways of operation um, that are and that's also something that is picked up in psychoanalysis as well, uh, where we find this expanding and the contracting force, uh, for example, or something like a unifying force and a, a displacing force to some extent. So here we have the very interesting idea that only when these two are in a specific tension we have productive connections so it's the striving for some kind of identity to open up another discourse um and to difference uh, as well so only when those two things are, are maybe not unified by in but in this productive tension oscillating between the strive for identity and the form of difference of uh, unification and of um dispersion we have here the the creative potential of creating new territories by uh, deterritorialization and re-territorialization that is uh, mirrored within or by these two forms of flows of flow skiz and break flow. Right. It's kind of like what we were saying, right? Why does the unconscious do what it does? Right, right. This paragraph, I think you can safely read as an extension of 1.1, or basically, how does the connective synthesis work? So if we're talking about the product of cutting here, because uh, as Erlang's out this generalized topology, we have partial objects. They're always, each is emitting a flow. The flow is out it goes, having fun. And then uh, another object that it productively connects with, uh, that it then, that second object uh, necessarily creates a break in the flow, uh, modifies it, uh, whatever it is with that connection. And as such, that break uh, is what is creating um, object in general, moving beyond just pure partial object? It's a real question, Ashley asking, if my intonation didn't help. Yeah, so if I follow you correctly, you're trying to summarize this, right? Which is basically that partial objects interact by way of flows. Right, so there's your flow of desire, and there's your machinic element of the, and the actual objects, right? And when that happens, flows are uh, emitted, and flows are broken, right? And that's, I mean, in a shorthand, that's kind of the first synthesis, right? 
we're just kind of tacking on a little bit extra stuff here, which is to say, right, um, why are partial objects there? Well, part of their, I hesitate to stay instantiation, but, you know, part of why they're there is that as these flows connect and disconnect, as they emit and break, right, that's what basically produces the, the field of presence here that they're talking about, right? So in a sense, desire, uh, this is kind of the, the easy thing way to say it, desire is the explanation for why partial objects are there, because they're connected. And in doing so, those connections, when they say define the field of presence, right, uh, they defi defines, in a sense, the existence, uh, well, I hesitate to use that word, but defines uh, the existence of the object and what it's capable of, right, or begins to define it. Yeah, I feel like I want to spend more time on this paragraph because it's, I mean, it's it's deeply important to this idea of, again, the positive task and the identification because we aren't at the point of the negative, which is the destruction of uh, the symbols or the stories a person's telling and the, the, the destructive task. We are now talking about the building. So the identification of partial objects and the ability for us to actually see them, which seems to be very much the first task, is fairly dependent on our ability to grasp them topologically or uh, to be able to see them uh, or find them via their effects. Am I wrong? I, I think that's right, because I think, you're, I think you're trying to get at the question of, like, how do you start doing schizoanalysis, right? So you, you're doing the negative task, you're doing the destructive work, uh, which I'm a big fan of. And then, right, you're trying to deal with now that the the destruct uh, the representations are kind of being destroyed, and you're going beyond, I shouldn't say beyond that because it's probably misleading. Um, you're not letting the representation define things anymore, right? Now you're looking at what's happening, right? To your point, what's happening is that these objects uh, are connecting through these flows, and that's what basically explains why they're doing what they're doing, and why they are where they are. Hmm. Hopefully that's that's simple. Yeah, I feel like I'm shorthanding it. <laughs> that's quite Go interesting ahead. because when they are what they are, um, in relation to uh, these, you, you said destructive flows or something like that. It's um, that they interfere with each other in some kind of sense. And in the first half of this paragraph, uh, both authors are emphasizing this indirect nature. And that the synthesis of connection of the partial objects is indirect since one of the partial objects in each point of its presence within the field always breaks the flow that another object emits uh, and so on. So we don't have to do, have a to-do here with an active role like from a subject that these forms of uh, partial objects are constantly only striving in their sense to create their identity uh, or... or this demand uh, of an lack, but they have these specific connections in a very passive and indirect way. We don't have a controlling subject or reason that is operating here, but different forms, uh, a multiplicity and a pl uh, especially a plurality of different regimes of operation that are constantly interacting, uh, creating 
in their their workings uh, the milieus of others uh, and vice versa and and by that mm, creating new more complex forms that are not ruled by a, a transcendental signifier in that sense or uh, with a specific telos i'm i i'm going to take a second i want to read a little bit from uh, chaosophy because i think there's a paragraph that i had to go grab the book because it feels like it it plays into this uh, chaosophy uh, guattery at length kind of describing a few things this is specifically from balance sheet of desiring machines what defines desiring machines is precisely their capacity for an unlimited number of connections in every sense and in all directions. It is for this very reason that they are machines crossing through and commanding several structures at the same time. For the machine possesses two characteristics of powers. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, the power of the continuum, the machinic phylum in which a given component connects with another, the cylinder and the piston in the steam engine, or even tracing a more distant lineage, the pulley wheel in the locomotive. But also the rupture in direction, the mutation such that each machine is an absolute break in relation to the one it replaces as, for example, the internal combustion engine in relation to the steam engine. Two powers which are really only one, since the machine in itself is the brake flow process the brake being always adjacent to the continuity of a flow which it separates from the others by assigning it a code, by causing it to convey particular elements. Hence, the fact that the machine is motherless does not speak for a cerebral father, but for a collective full body, the machinic agency on which the machine sets up its connections and produces its ruptures. Um... The idea of the machine essentially being these two elements, that you have the one partial object that's with desire, it's, it's, it's going. Uh, desire sort of created in that moment of the two partial objects connecting. We have the machine. And as such, the machine actually breaks the flows of each and sort of creates new. It, it diverts them. It creates something. And that connective essence of the two um, uh, you might say I would. I, I'm starting to begin to use the word like meta interaction. That you have the the singular that's fine, but then at some point it connects to another, and then you have this meta emergent interaction between the two that is the brake flow. That suddenly that machine is called as, and as such you have those machines connecting into other machines into others, and you have these layers upon layers of complexity built that uh, ultimately. Uh, as they say here, the flows are two-headed, and it is by means of these flows that every productive connection is made such that we have tried to account for the notion of flow skiz or break flow. So that the true activities of the conscious, causing to flow and breaking flows, consist of the passive synthesis itself insofar as it ensures the relative coexistence and displacement of the two different functions. Specifically, the base layer of that thing I just said, the, the very bottom, that where it is these partial objects as they're describing it here, that is just the partial object in the flow and the other one, that's the essence we're talking about. That before anything connects, the, the connections at the base, as Guattari says, what makes a partial object is that it can connect to anything. That, hmm. that lack of story, that lack of determinant uh, feels important here. And that's the interesting thing that 
I guess I read it in that way that from these two heads or these two principles and, and directions of flows, the flow skis or, or break flow, um, never one of these is getting the upper hand for uh, forever, so to speak, because uh, they are antagonizing uh, each other, but in a very productive way, because when we try to frame it in, in psychoanalytical terms, we only can think with Eros and uh, Thanatos at the same way, because uh, when we would only look at this desiring principle or uh, principle of the Eros of love as something that is constantly striving uh, for something else, creating uh, connections, so everything becomes it itself in that sense, uh, we would at one point have a standstill, a total identity, uh, and and an absolute system, but that isn't able anymore to create connections and becomings uh, and on the other side with uh, something like death thanatos it's it's the same thing we because we have this uh, eternal contraction um that is just creating a indefinitely small point that uh, doesn't allow something like becoming creation and, and productivity as well So the partial objects are are part of this flow, right? And it's this. Um, so the flow, um, you know, is the um, is you know is the um, is the machine. I mean, the the whole process is is this machinery. I mean, so the partial objects are like the beans in the process in the in the in the flow of becoming. Bringing this all back to this paragraph, then, yeah, you've got the flows connect to the vitalism and the partial objects to the the mechanism, right? I believe this is four two or four three four two, I think. Otherwise, it's four three. Uh, anyways, right, and those two things are coextensive, such that once again, just like we can't do the male female thing, so as to define things prior to them being. Right, if that made sense. It's not that male precedes um, whatever object is at hand, right? It's not the condition for the object. Um, in the same way, right, the, the mechanism and the, the vitalism uh, work together as production, right? So those two things are convolving so as to cause the desiring machines to, and that's why they're desiring machines and not just machines, right? Because in that perspective, we're talking about them um, in that process of vitalism, but also in that process of mechanism, right? And so in this, in the context of this paragraph, then what you're getting out of that is, as they connect, because that, uh, because that basically is the condition for their field of presence, right? So he'd use the, uh, the breast and the mouth. The breast and the mouth, um, for them to be understood in their capacities, you're looking at them in the context of that connection, thereby that relationship. And if you want to consider their, um, I don't know if this is the right word, but it's at least understandable in their existence, but more so their presence, what they're doing when they're there, it's going to be under that condition of production um, and flow or vitalism, right? That's how we're understanding um, 
what's at hand. That's how the breast and the mouth um, exist effectively in that uh, co-productive relationship. At least as far as, since we're only in the first synthesis, right? At least as far as the first synthesis goes. Yeah, I would I would add um, just to read another little part that I think is a. I highly recommend uh, Balance Sheet for Design Machines uh, from Chaosophy. We have it somewhere on the server. I'll find a PDF and toss it back up. Um, Desiring machines are indeed the same as technical and social machines, but they are their unconscious, as it were. They manifest and mobilize the investments of desire that correspond to the conscious or pre-conscious investments of interest, the politics, and the technology of a specific social field. To correspond does not at all mean to resemble. What is at stake is another distribution, another map, that no longer concerns the interests established in a society, nor the apportionment of the possible and the impossible, of freedoms and constraints. All that constitutes a society's reasons. But beneath these reasons, there are the unwanted forms of desire that invest the flows as such, and the breaks in these flows, a desire that continually reproduces the aleatory factors, the less probable figures, and the encounters between independent series that are at the base of society, a desire that elicits a love for its own sake, a love of capital for its own sake, a love of bureaucracy for its own sake, a love of repression for its own sake, all sorts of strange things, such as, how is it possible that men desire repression not only for others, but also for themselves? The essence of how these things work and what they're really getting at in this section is getting to that step beyond where we're not talking about society's reasons. Thank you, Boskard. We're not talking about society's reasons. We're not talking about the reasons that even a person may tell themselves, but instead getting to the partial objects that function within the unconscious so we can see the way that the desiring machines are producing or reproducing or improperly producing desire that may be leading to destructive or harmful or, or other elements, if that makes sense. That's, I think that's a really fantastic little section. It's worth reading. Uh, it's now linked in the Anti-Oedipus chat under live, live chat. Find Anti-Oedipus. We'll toss it in the main one, too. I guess just to, because I'm always concerned with not, not trying to... I suppose I'm always concerned with what I'm implying. When, just to go back to the self-sufficiency point, the reason I can kind of make that point, but also the reason I want to make sure I'm clear on why I can qualify it is because they, they, they point out, to losing body point out, right? Desire doesn't lack anything. So my point about self-sufficiency is that, again, you know, the breast is explained and it, 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 is, it happens. The breast happens because of its relationship with the mouth, right? And that's what creates the multiplicities for their presence. In doing so, going back to a few paragraphs ago, there's no need to appeal to a missing phallus there because their relationship, the desire um, that uh, brings them together, but also the, me the mechanistic production that they embark on, right? There's no missing phallus there. It's simply that that is what um, makes them do what they do, or at least in terms of the first synthesis, brings them together and starts their production. Mm -hmm. 
Now, let us assume that the respective flows associated with two partial objects at least partially overlap. Their production remains distinct in relation to the objects X and Y that emit them, but not the fields of presence in relation to the objects A and B that inhabit and interrupt them, such that the partial A and the partial B become in this regard indiscernible, thus the mouth and the anus, the mouth anus of the anorexic. And they are not indiscernible solely in the mixed region, since one can always assume that, having exchanged their function within this region, they cannot be further distinguished by exclusion there where the two flows no longer overlap. One then finds oneself before a new passive synthesis, where A and B are in a paradoxical relationship of included disjunction. Finally, there remains the possibility, not of an overlapping of the flows, but of a permutation of the objects that emit them. One discovers fringes of interference on the edge of each field of presence, fringes that testify to the remainder of a flow in the other, and form residual conjunctive syntheses guiding the passage or the heartfelt becoming from the one to the other. A permutation involving two, three, in organs, deformable, abstract polygons that make game the of the figurative edible triangle and never cease to undo it through binarity overlapping or permutation all these indirect passive syntheses are one and the same engineering of desire but who will be able to describe the desiring machines of each subject what analysis will be exacting enough for this mozart's desiring machine quote raise your ass to your mouth ah my ass burns like fire but what can be the meaning of that Perhaps a turd wants to come out. Yes, yes, turd. I know you. I see you. I feel you. What is this? Is such a thing possible? That last bit is uh, actually Mozart. Um, not to, first time reading through, I had to like double check. Actual, actually Mozart. Uh, he did a lot of shit humor and uh, wrote a lot of letters around poop. Uh, it's a very good example, though, of what they're talking about. Jack? Poop. As one does, right? Writes yeah, a lot of letters about poop, as one does. Poop's funny. Oh, man, I just, I just hopped on the mic to, to make a poop joke, and now I gotta read? Oh, yeah, I know, it happens. <laughs> happens to all of us. Damn, I got volunteered. Um, yeah, I, I can get take a crack at uh, kicking this off. Uh, so, right, we're working on the first synthesis passing into the second synthesis, right? Libido into Newman, uh, production into distribution. So they write, just start at the beginning, I guess. Now let us assume that the respective flows associated with two partial objects at least partially overlap. Their production remains distinct in relation to the objects X and Y that emit them, but not the fields of presence in relation to the objects A and B that inhabit and interrupt them, such that the partial A and the partial B become in this regard indiscernible, thus the mouth and the anus, the mouth anus uh, of the anorexic. So part of what I see them trying to get at here is, um, I suppose contextuality, right? Object that's an object Y that emit the flows and then moving into the point about the fields of presence in relation to the objects A and B 
that inhabit and interrupt them. So in this sense, right, I think what they're trying to say is like there's the breast and there's the mouth, and then there's the breast and the mouth um, in the context of their production. And in that sense, uh, well, actually, I don't even think you need that, right? Let's put it back in 1.1 in terms of the mouth versus the the mouth and its capacity to consume something, to uh, masticate, to chew, right? But it can also uh, sponge things. It can also vomit. It can also sing. It can also speak, right? There's all these different things the mouth is capable of doing. And part of the way you're going to get at why it does what it does, why those capacities will function in that manner, why the mouth can be used as an, an anus, which is kind of their point about the anorexic, right, is that um, an entrance can also function as an exit, and indeed does, is that this distributive process takes over from those fields of presence and helps put those objects to work in terms of what they're going to do, right? And this carries on from other flows. And and their use here, um, there was a great comment on Reddit I'm going to quote uh, that went through this section very particularly um, that I think helped me grasp it because the, the examples they give are, uh, we'll say complex psychoanalytically, but I don't think this is necessarily a, a a thing that is purely about uh, psychoanalytic archetypes like mouth anus of the anorexic. Um, to quote, um, what about pizza for dinner? For the desire machine that is the phrase pizza for dinner to come together a number of partial objects, discrete hungers, past memories, social engagements, who's in the house, millions of things are all pumping out desire flows in various directions, interrupting each other. Well, pizza is unhealthy. We had it last week. Oh, remember that shitty time we had it? What if we want Chinese uh, that are all sort of redirecting and moving and producing distortions? What if I just drop the whole pizza on the ground for no reason as a statement. A few of them partially overlap. Ultimately, these things, all of these partial objects together that are at the base level of the existence you're having produce the phrasing, well, pizza for dinner, which we assign then, oh, I want pizza for dinner because we exist after the fact, but we want to give ourselves sort of that belief. And it's totally indiscernible within the consolidation of all of that desire. The, the phrasing that they're talking about here is that there is this sort of mass of all of these essences of the partial objects and the pass, through the passive synthesis that are producing these things that kind of create this network of elements that ultimately come out and surface in the, they use the example of mouth anus, we can say pizza for dinner, we can say bunch of shitheads on Discord reading anti-Oedipus, you decided you wanted to do this. Well, you didn't. It's the desiring machines at the base layers of what you're doing that are kind of informing you all the time that you pretend you made this choice, but you didn't. Uh, instead, this was made for you by the desiring machines that are ultimately producing your subjectivity that you then fall back on, uh, as you might say. Your BWO falls back on, claims ownership, off you go. Uh, this is what they're getting at through a lot of this. You did not make the choice, Jan Claire. Well, maybe you did. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, it's more about the underlying like network effect of all of those things that come together. And that's kind of their indiscernible is, is that line that they're talking about. It's really tough to break down 
Um, it's not solely indiscernible in the mixed region. One can always assume that having exchanged their function within this region, they cannot be further distinguished by exclusion from the two flows that overlap. No, no, no. It's, this is very much about the problem of these indescribable flows of desire, which is why we're not talking about the flows of desire. We're talking about the partial objects, not the flows. Uh, if that makes sense. I, I think I'm saying that correctly. Am I saying that correctly? Anyone, please? Someone? I, I think you're definitely getting at the complexity of it, which is like part of why I think they're using objects A and B and then, I'm sorry, objects X and Y and then partial A and partial B is right. Like they're, they're trying to make the point, I think, of like the mouth and the anus seems like such an intuitive distinction, right? But it, perhaps it relies on exclusive disjunction too, because if we're looking at their capacities for functioning, entrance and exit, that's that's kind of the point, right? That the mouth versus the anus, one takes in food, the other emits the, the remains of that food, right? Flow and flow. But yes. once you get into the molecular, the capacity to expel and intake, right? Those capacities start kind of convolving. And this is the point about the inclusive disjunction because the mouth and the anus, and there's actually a, a fantastic South Park episode like this, but um, it's also one of the most difficult to watch because it's, it's also quite repugnant. But uh, nevertheless, right? The anus and the mouth can both perform those functions even if they perform them differently is whatever they're connecting with will determine their presence, but it'll also help determine their functions, right? So this this joke with Mozart at the end, I mean, I think that's more or less what the case in point is, is that the ass can burn like fire. Well, so can your mouth, right? The uh, the ass can be raised in the air, and the, you know the point about spelling the turd is it can just as soon um, be taken back in, right? It can be taken back in, but the, the more critical thing is that something wants to come out and something wants to come in. And those capacities um, intersect, right? They're, they're coordinated. When Jean-Claire, your question of uh, where the molar comes in, actually, I mean, they're going to be getting to this, but to go back to pizza for dinner or to talk about anorexia or uh, poop jokes, which are great. Um, the, the question is at this point, they're talking here almost, uh, entirely about, uh, what I would say are more emergent, uh, desiring machines. When I say emergent, I mean, from the bottom up, you might say, uh, not pardon the pun, given that we're talking about poop. Uh, but the, the idea being that, uh, the desiring machines, uh, that exist, the partial objects are formed through sort of a, a natural growth, an emergent growth. Uh, I don't want to say organic, but it's that type of thing where it's they're moving on, they're connecting as they do. With the syntheses, we also have, uh, as they do this, obviously we have to utilize language at some point. We say, oh, I want to get pizza. I have to order it. I have to do all these things. How do you feed the desires? Well, and this is where I think not to get too far ahead of us. Again, it's why I used that phrase earlier that 
we're not trying to interpret desire. We're trying to look at the machines and the partial objects because the desire, oh, I want to have pizza as a thing. We're naming the flow. That's totally not what, how it works. We have the, we have objects, we have machines that are doing those things. Think about it as mechanics. Uh, exactly, Boskart. Think about it as mechanics as you're going through, and you're not necessarily trying to diagnose the oil that's moving through or the gasoline, but instead trying to figure out here's the parts and here's how things move through. You don't go, oh, uh, I see you. Uh, you that car wants to uh, pee oil. That's not how that works. That's not at all how cars work. So you go through and you find the the parts. What they're talking about here is is starting at that place and instead talking about here are the base layers, here are the machines that actually function, how they function, and what they produce because we can't talk about desire. We can't really describe it in, in as much as anything beyond words like intensity. Uh, and like uh, even that becomes, I think, problematic in a different way. So we have to talk about the desire machines. Now where this gets fucked up is the other side, which is I have to talk to someone about pizza. So, well, I want pizza. Oh, you want pizza? Well, are you a member of the Pizza Hut Super Club? No, what's that? Oh, you want to be a part of that? Well, now I want to be a part of the Pizza Super Club. And like, do I? Like, that's, do I? Like, what, well, I was told this. So we need to understand these machines, how they function, what you might say, uh, emergently, organically, naturally, and then be able to also identify where the, paralogisms are coming in where the molar elements and representation have mutated and broken. Because again, we're also not talking about drastically different things. Social machines and the molar are just desiring machines at like a massive level, an aggregate meta level of a huge number of them. They operate not drastically different, but it's just, they operate in that way that they are multiples. It's not singular Whereas with desiring machines, we are talking about singular at some point because of the way partial objects uh, sort of operate. Uh, I think that was a ramble. God damn it. So are there two ways of understanding what's going on that the based on uh, the idea of partial objects? Uh, that's kind of like the um, how we understand, you know, um, you know, the, um, you know, the process of life, you know, the process of life. Um, that the, uh, you have the partial object of the mouth, partial object of the anus, but that... Oh, those, are, those are whole objects. Right. So that's, I, that's I, the, there's some level where objects A and B, which are anus, mouth, and partial right. A and partial B are other bits within that. Again, it's, it's why I, it's tough right. for this one because the way they refer to it is they talk about mouth, mouth anus, the anorexic mouth and anus as, but they don't define what does partial object mean in the world of mouth and anus when it means um, all the bits that make the mouth what it is when you think of that object. And there's right. a shit ton of them socially, eminently, whatever it may be that sort of make up the sort of pressure behind that thing that makes it operate as a desiring machine. And you may have at some point uh, some fucked up thing that happened to your mouth or your butt or whatever it is that changes how you react to it or deal with that, that these are, again, how these partial objects work themselves. Right. We need to understand if, if I'm, I'm kind of rambling, Jack, anyone else? So, jump in. so the mouth and the uh, anus are, are part of the, the, the process, the, the machinery of the, of the partial objects, right? 
and the machinery of the partial objects are part of the flow, right, or in the flow of, uh, of that process uh, that the machinery is operating. And, um, and that's how they're connected. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You're, you're saying that um, the mouth and the breast, because of the desire and the product, because of the desire um, connecting them and the way that they're being productive, that is what basically, I mean, that, that is what defines their presence, basically, and all the capacities that that enables. And then the next step then is like, to take that and look at like what they're capable of doing, right? And that's the basically the second synthesis, what they're going to do in terms of um, production through the distribution. Yeah, so the desire that drives the machinery of these partial objects is just part of that process of flow, right? With all the these two functions of uh, displacements and uh, and that ensures um, relative coexistence right that and the mechanism but yes because they're neither one exactly. precedes the other right, right because they're reciprocal right right and but otherwise mouth, yeah I think you got it right the mouth and the breasts and the anus are are just part of this this, uh, this, this system of machinery of desire. Right, that which which exists in this uh, process of flow, right? I I want to be hesitant with the words process of flow. I'm going to steal Bostgard's uh, allegory and sort of go with it a bit. When we talk about a river, we are referring to the flow of the water, but water is just flowing, like it just does what it does, and it's just moving. The the thing that makes a river have the shape or the view that I have of it or the texture or the whitewater rapids or the direction it goes isn't actually the water. The water is almost uh, uh, irrelevant to that except in the nature of its power, I guess would be the way to put it. What actually matters is the material that makes up the bed of the river or the edges of it or the rocks within that gives it its very unique styling. So if we talk about partial objects as uh, the rocks within the river or the bends or the curves or the water wheel or the other things that we instantiate and put within the water as it's flowing. We change the river and we call the river what it is, but the water isn't the thing doing it. It's not what makes rivers. Water is going to do what it's going to do. If I were to just destroy everything and flatten the entire river, water is still going to flow as it does. It it, it doesn't determine the rocks. The rocks are determined by uh, themselves. They, they're there. The power of the river is sort of what interacts. It's the back and forth thing. But here we aren't discussing and aren't trying to define the river, the flux and the flow, which very much is about uh, sort of strength uh, and power and intensity, but instead discuss the rocks and the, the, the edges, the why is it eroding here? Why is it more powerful here? Well, it's because we have these rocks here. We have this dirt here. It's not the water. It's the things around it. And so when we talk about partial objects and these things, it's important we discern separately flow, which I, and I, I can be swayed on this because this is a guess because uh, I, I don't have any reason to say this. Flow feels as if 
throughout Deleuze in general, we're talking about sort of a purity of that element, that it is something that sort of um, doesn't actually ever, like flow itself can be codified, at which point it's no longer flow. It's coded. Um, and we code can be turned back into a flow, but the flow itself is almost uh, just the flow, I, as I understand it. Please, would anyone. The, the flow be the desire? Correct. Flow is desire. Desire flows. Desire breaks in the flows, whatever it may be. Um, the desire itself, we aren't trying to define. And that's one of the things that they very early on, and um, I think their early critiques or play into Freud, because I think there's a lot of general discussion in the psychoanalytic community about this. It has been desire itself can't really be defined. It is just uh, libido. It's just okay. a sexual desire. It at some point gets codified into different things. Sure. But flow itself is just the flow. It's the, the interruptions, the breaks, the things that it, it is produces it or runs through it is the thing that matters. And all, sorry, go ahead. So punishing objects are driven by this, uh, this uh, flow, which is desire. Yes. Partial objects emit it naturally. Like they're just going, the connection of them is productive, which causes it to, uh, increase intensity and a machine is created. This machine, uh, breaks and plays with the flow of each. It's not just like it's like an addition and everything is perfectly smooth. There's breaks, there's all kinds of stuff that happens between two partial objects and then meta, 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 and they continue sort of going. And if you can imagine underneath you right now as a subject, there is an almost infinite number of these partial objects that are ultimately constantly connecting, disconnecting, making, breaking, all of this that are producing the machines that are then producing what you now call your your desire the thing you want to say you want to type you want to not to want to be quiet to want to go watch tv to want to go jerk off to want to go watch porn to read some more to lose whatever it may be these things produce ultimately the desire that is instantiated that we can call the thing but desire is not the thing itself instead it is an emergent sort of uh, secondary property of all these bits that comes out of it. The desire still flows. I think I, I need just to presume I'm saying that as the, this is my grasp of, of generally what Deleuze and Guattari have writing here and what they've written elsewhere as a thing that our entire subjectivity is ultimately produced through this process. And, um, as we talk about things like Mozart's desiring machine, uh, that's their joke at the end here, who will be able to describe the desiring machines of each subject? What analysis will be exacting enough for this? Mozart's desiring machine, which is uh, sort of an absurd thing, um, but it ends with a great little line that says, having come of age, he found means of concealing his divine essence by indulging in scatological amusements. This is the analysis of him. More shows convincingly how uh, more shows convincingly how scatological machine works underneath and against the Oedipal cage. This this is the way he he played within that space. And again, fighting the Oedipal triangle, fighting these elements, constantly trying to go outside of them. And I I, I think what might help here, and as I've been as, as we've been having this conversation, it's really helped me. Um, 
get to a point where I think I can explain this. And it actually helps answer some questions for me, which is the how capacities are defined, right? Or or how they're enabled, right? What makes them possible? And so if we're kind of working on that point of like from the from the destructive to the positive, yeah. So if you're putting the anus and the mouth in relation to each other, right? Since that's what Mozart's giving us. I, I tend to go with the breast and the mouth, but we have the the ass and the uh the mouth here, so so be it. Right, there's different capacities that both of those uh, machines bring to the table, right? But the, those capacities are defined by the desire that relates them so as to give the field a presence, right? And together, that's your, you know, you, the, the multiplicities involved basically are what enable capacities. So I think they're using this example because the mouth and the anus are yeah, you know, they're on opposite ends of the body, so they shouldn't come into contact, right? The Mozart thing is, it's helping to push this point about paradox then, because we we tend to think they shouldn't come together and they do very different things. But Deleuze and Guattari's point is like, you know, since psychoanalysis will always go back to the, the geniuses of, of the past, Da Vinci and so forth, right? Faust and Sophocles, as we've seen, you can just as easily go back to Mozart, who puts the two machines in relation to each other, right? And in doing so, or rather because the desire brings them together, because they have become coextensive and therefore they um, they mutually create each other's capacities through the presence. I'm trying to get away from the word existence there, because I think it might get cumbersome. But because the anus and the mouth are defined coextensively here, the capacities that each has is also coextensive. And I I think that might be at base the point they're trying to make in the first half of this paragraph is that because the connective synthesis produces the the field of presence, right, and that's what creates the possibilities for capacities. When two machines are connected to each other through the, through desire, what they can do is also coextensively connected, and that's the inclusive disjunction. Because the point about the anus mouth machine is to say, in the same way that the wasp orchid machine creates um, a unique set of uh, of capacities relative to assemblage, so too does the same happen here. So if you're working by way of representation, right? The exclusive disjunction that I think they outline a little bit in this paragraph of what the, the anus and the mouth usually bring to the table, right? Once you get to the desiring machine that gives you the mouth anus, you're more or less kind of seeing what Mozart's seeing, which is that the two are coextensively functional. So what they do is in relation to each other through the mutual presence, right? And then they move into a part about subjectivity, but it's it's kind of glossed over. But I think that's at least the first half of the paragraph. How do you get capacities? Yeah, I can get with that completely. That's a great way of putting it, Jack. The whole purpose... It's a start. Go ahead, JK. The whole purpose of his Mozart quote is to show that he was uh, trying to escape from his uh, Oedipal cage, right? I was breaking out of that um, that structure 
of um, the molar structure. Yeah, and, I mean, the, the fact that a, a great example is the fact that every time I've looked at this, I've had to like in my head remind myself that the first time I saw this, I had to Google and find out that this is not, not a joke because the whole, the full body of Mozart doesn't feel like this. Oh no, dear Lord. There's no way that he said something about shitting in his own mouth and, and a lot worse. Uh, actually when you read it, um, that's the point here. And that's the, the line that Mozart of all people who, uh, I, I would say, wrote some very lovely, ridiculous, stunning music, um, didn't want to just be that thing. He's not just that thing. He's not just Mozart, to the point where he's like, yes, I will play this stunningly beautiful music, I will write it, also shitting in my own mouth, which I just kind of love as a thing. And it's uh, Joyce's Love Letters is, a, is another great example of this. Um, uh, uh, Fitzgerald too. Like there, there's a, a, a lot of, uh, we'll say, excessive perversion you might find in the creative class. Once people have become totalized, uh, they kind of go that other direction. And you know, going back to capacities and functions, right? What they do when they're doing it isn't defined by like a condition of genius, which is something we're we're very quick to kind of assume, right? Um, I think Deleuze and Guattari's point is like, yeah, maybe Mozart did write some beautiful stuff, um, but that too is a process of production. And in both cases, neither is such that, you know, the musical genius is what caused him to do any of these things, right? Mozart just as easily can write this letter. Um, and part of the thing is, right, like there's, again, there's a desire bringing those two things together the mouth and the anus. And then there's that last part of the paragraph, right, which is the, uh, the conjunction, the subjectivity um, that makes somebody like Mozart in this situation, right, that that you get this point about, um, I see you, I feel you, a turd wants to come out, right, these different subjectivities that, to their, their emphasized point, um, aren't derived from a pre-established meaning. such as, say, genius. And I can't help but also mention that Charlie Chaplin got off by throwing pies at naked women, which is just kind of like... Wait, you, you don't? I kind of think that's amazing as a thing. That, I mean, he had a lot of shitty personality traits, but one of the things he often did is he threw pies at naked women. Um, that he was, yeah, he had, it's lots of pies, not one or two pies, Boastgard. Like, it was a continuous thing, uh, which is a trip. Wait, are, are you suggesting I didn't just throw one at one person, he threw like two or three at the same person? So, like, uh, uh, Chaplin was famous for the casting couch bullshit uh, that you kind of hear about in Hollywood. But what he would do is he'd have the women do a strip tease and then stand naked against a wall as he threw pies at them before having sex. And I don't, I, I'm, I feel awful You're for kidding. women. I can't in my head, like not kind of chuckle a little bit like, what the fuck? It's so insane. Um, not, not a joke. It's not a thing. That's like, it's just a thing. That's uh, people are, are fascinating. Um, 
the, the little bits, the side things um, that make people push out of where they're at and constantly finding new places to grab onto. There's a lot of interest there, I think, um, in what they're talking about here. I don't know. Chaplin and Pies, man. I haven't been able to bring it up. I've been waiting since we, we brought up Chaplin because I read a couple books on him and uh, Chaplin and Pies, man. Google it. It's a whole thing. But with that... I, uh, uh, I don't are... know about you guys, but I learned something today. I'm glad. I'm glad we could we could build out the knowledge. Um, glad we could build out the knowledge. Uh, I'm going CBS to... CBS cares. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close out on that lovely note of pie throwing fetishes and shitting in your own mouth as Mozart, um, which that's how you know that it's a Deleuze reading. Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close out and say thank all of you for joining us. Next week, we will continue from the bottom of 325 as we start getting into, as JK intimated, the body without organs and the way they operate contrary of the organs partial objects. Thank all of you so much for joining us. And as always, this is the highlight of my week. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, 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 thank you. Thank you.